Welcome everybody to On the Edge with Eddie Detangling Our Black Identities. I am your host, Eddie Essie. I am thrilled, as always, for you to be joining our conversation to explore all the different shades of Black identities, have real conversations and discussions. Um, I always say our conversations, stories, and discussions are not meant to degrade, they're not meant to discourage, they're not meant to prove a point. Exploring Black identities, it's all about learning, empowering, giving a voice to people to tell their stories and at times be a voice for those who don't feel comfortable telling their stories. Because, hey, I'm telling you right now, there's some Black folks out there who are being suppressed, right? Because they're being suppressed because, you know, the system is suppressing them, their parents are suppressing them, their families. Are su- I mean, there's a whole lot of things that suppress Black people that, you know, a lot of people don't know about. And some people are just scared to come out and, you know, tell the story. So again, you know, On the Edge with Eddie is all about telling stories and giving people a voice to tell their stories. Hey, today I am uh, super excited to have Sandria Nina. Hey, so dance extraordinaire. Um, Sandra graduated from West High School, uh, born originally born in Kenya, moved to the United States when she was very young. Great advocate, social movement, I mean, social justice movement. Uh, she has done it all. But hey, I am here to talk about what it's like growing up as practically an American in an African home and all the social justice movement for the younger generation, because I truly believe they're the ones that are going to change the world for us. And I am excited to talk to Sandra. Sandra, you are welcome to On the Edge with Eddie. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing really well. It's doing nice good? to be here. I'm very excited. Yeah. Well, thanks for, thanks for um, joining the conversation. Um, so right now, you're, you're a dance major in Pittsburgh. How's that going? Yes, I'm in my sophomore year. It's nice. going really well. Um, I've been cast in a few shows, so I'm getting my feet off the ground. Finally, nice. get some career okay. started. Yeah. Well, so you know what? Let me. Let, I'm gonna start from the beginning. Um, and I've seen some of your dance videos. I mean, they're pretty sick. I mean, you're <laughs> you're you're lit, dope. I mean, the you're you're a fabulous dancer, right? Yeah. Um, and you specialize in uh, modern and contemporary dance, right? Yeah. Um, but so your your parents are Kenyan, right? Now I'm I'm just gonna go out and you know <laughs> just start the conversation <laughs> <laughs> in the realest way. As African parents, right? Dance is some one of them things that they're like, oh yeah, you can be a dancer, right? Yeah. I mean, how did it happen that you became a dancer? Uh, it took a lot of convincing. It took a lot of proving myself. Yeah. Um, but most of all, I think I I was really lucky to have a mom who appreciated the arts as it was. Um, yeah. From a very early, early onset stage, um, she really pushed for me to stay in dance. Mm-hmm. Um, more so for the like discipline that it gives you as a young child and like Obviously, it's good exercise. It's a great thing to have on your resume. But yeah. more, you know, a couple of years down the line, as I started to get really serious about it, and I started training in New York City and all these different places, she noticed that I really had a passion for it. And right. 
I'm lucky that my mom saw that instead of seeing doctor, lawyer, dentist, <laughs> and all those things. Right, right. Well, hey, so let's talk. Let's talk growing up. I mean, so you moved to the United States, but you grew up in Iowa City. Yes. Um, I would say it's like you know, practically a white, a white city, right? I mean, oh, yeah. the 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 black population is somewhat diverse. There is the the Chicago blacks. There is the mm-hmm. Africans. There's the people stuck in the middle who don't really know who they are. Um, yeah. But growing up in Iowa City, in an African home, more specifically. Mm-hmm. A Kenyan, <laughs> right? Um, and I think uh, your mom is from Nairobi, Kenya. You guys are from Nairobi, Kenya. Yeah. What was it like for you growing up Black in Iowa City in an African household? It was difficult. I thought that a lot of things that I had to do that a lot of my peers didn't have to do were unfair. Um, some of the rules that were bestowed upon me, the expectations that are bestowed upon me right um it's just a a lot higher than the rest of my peers experienced um i would say that i did learn that it was for the best i did learn that it was not necessarily a bad thing Mm -hmm. and that um you know everyone's raised differently no one's all gonna be raised the same and You know, it, it makes you who you are, but I couldn't blame my mom. That's how she was raised. And right, right. she was also learning to raise kids in a society where she, you know, it was new for her. It was new for me. And, you know, I wasn't growing up in Kenya where she was raised. So a lot of those societal social norms are, are different. And she had to learn how to, you know, be a parent in a society that doesn't necessarily see spanking as like a good thing and like different ways of disciplining your child and different ways of, you know, encouraging your child or discouraging different things that your child, you know, would like to do. So it was, I guess, a learning process for both of us. Did you, did you ever, when you were in um, uh, elementary school, even junior high, did people ever remind you or actually the question oh my god you're from africa how come you speak you speak very good english yeah Yeah. (laughs) right first of all it's like i don't know where that idea came from that people from africa do not speak very good english okay yeah yes it's okay we have a very strong accent if you want to have a strong accent because we we come from the british system okay we understand that but Mm -hmm. why in god's name people think that we don't speak english because we're from africa did you did you experience that tell me about that I did get that. I used to also get, um, are you adopted? Because mm-hmm. a lot of people would hear my voice and be like, there's no way that you are African and have African parents. Right. And you speak with like no sort of accent at all. Yep. So they would just assume that I had white parents. <laughs> but, you know. What was it like growing up in um, going to elementary school? Um, elementary school was an interesting time because I had to sort of navigate classroom experiences and other like I guess that's when I really started to learn what what society was like I started to learn what um what peer influence felt like and how that can affect you. Um, I guess to start, I 
wasn't one of the richest kids in my school, but I did go to one of the wealthiest elementary schools in the district. Right. So I, I did experience things like seeing how like wage gaps can affect friend groups and can affect how people treat you and can affect how teachers look at you. Mm-hmm. And I started to kind of internalize that and almost blame my, my household for it. I would blame my parents for it. I would ask, why aren't we rich? Why can't I have the newest cool pencil eraser that everyone has? But like, I had to start to learn that that wasn't necessarily my fault, my parents' fault, but it was, you know, social norms and classism and things like that. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Do you, remember, do you remember when you were, you were treated differently the first time in elementary school, you were treated differently because either you were black or you were different or your hair was different or you looked different. Do you, mm-hmm. do you recall that experience at all? Yeah. Um, I can distinctly remember I came to school in um, those like braids. They're like the four braids that your mom would put your hair in. And like, they're not necessarily the cutest style, but it just kept your hair out of the way. Yep. And there were kids who would ask me like, why does your mom put your hair in these things? And they would say that they don't look cute. And I would take out my hair at school. So my hair could like lay down flat, just like the rest of the other white girls, because I wanted to look like them. And then I would come home and my mom would be like, why did you do this to your hair? I spent all this time doing it. And I'm like, well, the other girls said it wasn't cute. Or the other girl said, you know, I would look prettier with my hair down. So it reached a point where my mom had to like instruct the teachers to make sure that I didn't take my hair down in the middle of school wow. and you know, things like that. <laughs> but, you know, just, yeah. I guess I took it upon myself to try to assimilate with everyone because I felt that if I didn't, then I would, you know, be treated even more differently. Right. Than I was. was high school any different? I mean, no, not, let's, let's, high, we have a lot to talk about in high school. Let's talk about junior <laughs> high first. Was junior high any different? <laughs> yes. Junior high is when I entered what I like to call the sunken place. And mm. that is, that is when I completely disregarded every black trait that I had. Right. Like I was trying so hard to assimilate to be like every white girl. So I, you know, shopped all the brands that they shopped with. I, strained my hair every day. I did my makeup the same way, even though the color palette did not work for my skin tone. I, you know, would do everything possible to just be them because I thought that that's what it would take for them to fully accept me into their group because I was too black for the white girls, but too white for the black girls. So I didn't know exactly where I fell. So I decided to just do what I could and assimilate with the white girls. Cause you know, mm-hmm. that's why I hang out with that dance. And right. <laughs> that's, you know, was it hard for you making friends with um, some black girls or black people in general um, being seen, seen like, as, I mean, they're seeing you like you're too white to be black. Right. Mm-hmm. And again, I had um, the, the, the third episode of um, <laughs> the podcast, my sisters and I talk about the same experience, right. Um, because, you know, you go through like junior high, for example, um, you try to make friends, but because you speak 
proper English or you speak a certain way or, you know, you look a certain way, you are, well, I was referred to as the African, right? And it was interesting because I wasn't black enough to be a black American, right? And I wasn't obviously white enough to be called white to be white right so it was kind of like you get lost in the identity stuck in the middle um mm-hmm. it, it was hard for me and my sisters at that age and you just had to make friends right mm-hmm. um i'm wondering if, was it the same for you were you able to how hard was it for you to make friends with other black kids um it was very difficult for me to make friends with the black kids i will be perfectly honest and say that i had maybe three black friends in junior high and they happened to all be mixed at that so it's not even that I was friends with like like black black people um and it mostly was because they didn't want to be friends with me like I would try to be friends with them but they would say things like well you do ballet so you're just trying to be white well you speak proper so you don't even like being black like why do you why do you speak that way? Why don't you have an accent? Why don't you like, then they would ask me, you know, do you even drink grape soda or do you like fried chicken or like, do you like watermelon? I'm like, yeah. those are such arbitrary things yeah. to <laughs> decide someone's blackness. Right. And that's, you know, I kind of felt like I was over that. Like I wasn't going to try to like bend over backwards to fit a, a box that I didn't want to be in necessarily just because I had to be in it to be black. Right. So, you know. And the box that was created by whoever God knows who, um, and tried to fit people in those box. Right. Which again, I mean, I think the box was kind of created by the system, right. Mm-hmm. Um, a system that tries to oppress, you know, certain yes. groups of individuals. Um, and you know, if you're not careful and you buy into that system, basically what happens is you start classifying people to fit in those boxes, which again, you know, um, again, when I found out that I was just like, you know what, why am I busy trying to please other people? That's, that's just the dumbest thing ever. Uh, But again, we'll get to that in a minute. So junior high was stressful for you. Um, Hard making friends. You had a lot more friends that are white than black. Um, What was high school like for you when you got to high school with, you know, sort of like trying to find your identity um, yeah. Trying to find who you are, and then there's the African background, and then there's the 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 American background. There's the high school. I mean, high school is a mess, right? Yes. <laughs> Tell me about your high school. High school. <laughs> um, I would say that at the beginning of high school, I realized that after junior high, trying to assimilate to one or the other simply was just not going to happen. I just had to try to learn how to find my own identity in high school, which is one of the hardest things you can ask a 15-year-old to do when the high school I went to was probably one of the clickiest high schools Mm. ever. And if you didn't belong to a certain group, then, you know, who are you? And, you know, what's your purpose here? So just going through that for the first freshman year was difficult because I I went in a lot of friend groups. I got out of a lot of friend groups. I lost a lot of friends. I made a lot of friends. I tried a lot of activities. I dropped a lot of activities. It was definitely a trial and error kind of time for me. 
Mm. Um, sophomore year came and I think that's when I started to develop more solid relationships and, um, activities that I, that I really liked. So I joined, um, the dance marathon club, which is, um, you know, for childhood, the fundraiser for childhood cancer. And I found a lot of good friends in there, um, different classes that I really liked. I started to develop friendship groups from like study groups, um, you know, like my AP classes, things like that. Um, but then I, I definitely started to notice that I clung on to my dance friends the most because I spent the most time with them. Um, you know, we shared very similar passions. So that's kind of where I, I kept myself. So then throughout high school, I kind of distanced myself from um, high, my high school in general. Like I kind of separated myself from West and kind of stayed in my studio bubble for a little bit. Does that, so was that more of just um, a safety thing? You, you know, you felt safe in that bubble and you felt that people wouldn't judge you for who you are in the bubble and you just sort of just stuck in the bubble. Yes, I definitely clung on to the dancer identity because I started to realize that that's the only thing people ever knew about me. Yeah. So, you know, the first thing, people would say to me when they meet me as like, Oh, so you're that dancer. Oh, didn't you like go to New York city for like dance or something? And it's like, I kind of use that as like, well, at least I'm not known as like the loud black girl. At least I'm not known as like the angry black woman, you know, at least I'm not known as a negative stereotype. And I guess I kind of use dance as like, well, maybe this is kind of my, my, my white stereotype. And then I kind of started to notice that that was negatively impacting me um as much as i loved dance i started to realize that i was using it as a as a mask almost Mm. um so i could you know so i wouldn't be stereotyped as anything else because sorry go ahead no 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 i'm good (laughs) as i say were you still um confused about your identity at this point or at this point you think you are you know you have you know who you are um, or were you just still trying to figure things out? I definitely was still trying to figure things out, but I was more so kind of just trying to, I don't want to say disassociate from high school and like high school life, but I did not enjoy it in the slightest. And I used dance as, as my safety net and my safety bubble and my dance studio and everything that came with dance because high school was just a really tough time especially during um i mean the trump administration there was a lot of bullying that i endured during that time yeah and yeah so let's talk about rise and resist um again the resist movement um for those of you who don't know which (laughs) i am pretty (laughs) sure there are people out there who don't know what the resist movement is or rise and resist is can you tell our listeners first of all what the resist movement was and why you thought it was important for you um to be part of that movement and voice out your opinion yeah um well the resist movement was basically a resistance against um the trump administration and the rhetoric that came with the trump administration and as many of us know um during that camp, that first 2015 time campaign, there was a lot of rhetoric that was against immigration and very xenophobic rhetoric and racist rhetoric. And 
homophobic rhetoric. And that kind of funneled into its supporters and kind of created this cult mentality of people who were just building a party on hate and a I guess that's that's literally the only thing you can say. It, it was a party on hate. And we, it was a resistance of that widespread hate. And it was the resistance of the enabling of the hate. Because when you have someone of that power spewing down these ideals that weren't normally widely accepted to just say in normal conversation and in society, um, when you have someone of that you know, power who enables this kind of rhetoric and this kind of conversation to exist in day-to-day conversation. Um, it creates a, a, new, a new social norm that's not necessarily a positive one, and it mm-hmm. is also a damaging one. And it, it was damaging to people at my school. It was damaging to me. It was damaging to people all around the United States. I mean, the hate crimes that went up the first term of during the Trump administration. I mean, the facts are there to, you know, prove that. Yeah. So as a, a young black woman, at, at again, when you got involved in this, you were at West High School. Um, as a young black woman, tell me, or <laughs> let's tell people the effect especially of bullying, of being um, looked at, uh, or just, you know, the the sheer fear that comes with such rhetoric in mm-hmm. high school. Um, tell me a little bit about some of that bullying that happened um, mm-hmm. with you. And, you know, just, and again, I'm sure, you know, there was a point that you're just, you know, afraid, right? As a Black, as a black woman in, at, at school, tell me a little bit about that and how that really made you feel yeah so um the day that trump was elected um i saw it on tv and i ran up to my mom's room and i cried and i asked her if i could be homeschooled because i was scared of the kids who would continue to bully me at this point it already started happening there were boys who would tell me you know mlk didn't die for people like for black girls like you um are you even legally here? Do you have a citizenship? Like, did you come here legally? Um, they would tell me things just, I feel like they would do this just to get under my skin. But like, at the same time, I feel like they felt empowered. Like they felt like they were allowed to say these things. Like it was okay for them to say these things because the president says these things. Mm -hmm. So because of that, it almost made me feel powerless. It made me feel like I didn't even have society to back me up. I didn't even have my peers to back me up because it was normalized at this right. point to speak that way and to treat people just out of a hateful nature, I guess. And um, it reached a point where I did have to contact the administration and tell them about some of the things that were going on but you know when you have a majority white elitist school a lot of your concerns don't necessarily get voiced and or solved and or you know really made aware of 
it was more of the like boys will be boys he probably likes you he probably has a crush on you thing and right. you know it would just move along from there um my school was actually featured on the view because we were one of the most divided high schools um during the trump administration and yep. There were kids who were interviewed and they spoke about how they would be bullied about wearing a hijab by Trump supporters. But then the Trump supporters would be like, well, we're getting made fun of because we're wearing MAGA hats. And it's like, you can't compare a hijab to a MAGA hat. Like that right. just simply yep. apples to oranges. Can't do that. <laughs> you know, and that was that was the climate that I was in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's crazy to think that at the high school level, this amount of craziness happened. But that's really what Iowa City is like, yes. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. The Iowa City in Iowa, you know, it's it's really it's so diverse that I mean, not really that diverse, but it, there is some level of um, diversity within Iowa City um, that what you're describing that it's happening in high school happens in the city with the professionals itself, even at the university of Iowa, the institution itself, that example that you gave is what happens at the university. You think, you know, this extremely educated people, um, extremely smart, intelligent individuals will sort of take a step back and say, wait, uh, are we really doing the right thing? (laughs) Right. But obviously, if your um, administration is telling you that, oh, you know, that boy probably likes you, that's why they're bullying you or, you know, they're, you know, calling you names or treating you like you're subhuman. Mm -hmm. If the administrative is saying that, then obviously it's not going to change. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right yeah so yeah. so then my question to you is again you graduated high school um you know and now you're in pittsburgh you're doing dance and the whole um george floyd thing happened bearna taylor thing happened amy cooper thing happened so from your perspective um what do you think <laughs> again i ask this question because i i I, uh, I don't know, right? As if Black people are, first of all, arguing with each other that somebody's not Black enough to be Black, right? Mm-hmm. And some Black people are busy trying to always have straight hair to please the white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the, you know, the white people who are just, you know, you know, some of them, weaponizing their privilege right Mm -hmm. what 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 is there to do for the young generation i mean like and and you've been an advocate um for a while and you know you've tried to get out there and speak the truth and all of that what what can the young generation do the young generation can start to break these, I guess, um, stereotypes that, that have negatively been bestowed upon Black people and just start breaking them at, at the very root of, of how they were, they were brought. I'm, um, a lot of these stereotypes were brought on to us 
from the media and from um, different white um, people to keep black people down. The whole angry black woman thing was to suppress the black woman's voice. Mm. The whole um, black people are lazy thing was to suppress black excellence and black success. And the whole black people don't know how to, I don't know, take care of their children because the men run away was to keep the prison pipeline going, the school to prison pipeline going and to keep the projects going. And like, once you start to recognize where these stereotypes come from, you start to recognize how they affect us systemically right. and how they continue to empower the white man, but they, you know, even the black people who believe in it are still continue to be oppressed by it. And by showing the truth of where each stereotype comes from, I think is where you will start to bring to light how how we can stop yeah. normalizing them let, let me ask you a personal question then we can continue this discussion what did the death of brianna taylor do to you the death of brianna taylor really brought to light to me how much how far people will go to justify the death of a black woman who didn't do anything like she didn't she was asleep and people will continue to justify it by saying well she was messing around with a drug dealer well she shouldn't have been doing this well she shouldn't have done that and the same thing happened when they were talking about george floyd well he had all of these things in his past so he kind of deserved to die well he kind of did drugs all the time so he kind of deserved to die and it was it just brought to light how much people will try to justify their racism but then at the same time be like but i'm not racist it's just it's just the facts well i'm not racist it's just that's she did it to herself like kind of like putting the blame on her when she was asleep like she was literally asleep you know and it's like i don't know how you can blame her for that especially when when the evidence has come out that it was the wrong house and they didn't have you know like you know it's just there's just so much evidence that points to that it was the police officer's fault it yeah. in all you know definitions of the word fault it was their fault <laughs> So did so when you watch the videos um, of George Floyd and um, Breonna Taylor and all of that, how scared are you as a black woman in America? Um, I am terrified to the point where I did make a vow to myself that if I found out that I was going to have a black boy, I would leave the United States. Like I would never raise a black boy in America um, just because I just can't live with, with the anxiety that like black mothers have to live with knowing that, 
you know, your child could just go out to get Skittles one day and then be pinned to the ground and injected ketamine and and killed by police officers after they did absolutely nothing wrong. You know, living with the anxiety that your child could be taken away from you just because someone wanted to, just because someone like has a, a deep-seated hate for them. And I just, after seeing the countless videos and, and hearing the mothers of all of these people, I just, I could never put myself in that position. And I, I made a vow to myself. I think it was after Elijah McClain that I could just never have a boy in America. <laughs> I can't do it. That's, <laughs> um, that, I, that, I, that's just, that's, that's crazy. Um, to, to go to the extent um, that you have consciously made the decision that because you're black, you don't want to raise a child in the United States because of how the system is set up to, you know, kill innocent people like Rashad Brooks, right? Um, Daniel, um, I think Daniel Prudy, right? That was uh, George Floyd and the Breonna Taylors and the uh, Tatiana Jeffersons, right? It's, it's crazy that even though there is all this movement to bring awareness to the systematic racism that are in the United States. But yeah, like you said, people are just completely ignoring the fact that it exists, right? And for you to acknowledge that and make the decision that, you know what, this is not, I don't, I don't want to raise my, my child here in the United States. That's, that should like wake a whole bunch of people up, <laughs> right? I mean, that should, I mean, if you're listening and, you know, you just heard what Sandra Nina said, sophomore in college, making a decision that, you know what, United States is too messed up to raise a black child. I mean, if that is not like wake you the F up, I don't know what will, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Because that's some serious stuff, right? And it, it, again, I, I, I'm laughing. It's not a joke, but it's, it's reality, right? I mean, that's the reality is people go through these decisions and suffering all the time. But yet when it comes to talking about white privilege and having uncomfortable conversation, they're like, oh, yeah, we want to have the Okama conversations. Someone who does not have a weapon, which, again, a lot of these Black individuals were killed who does not have a weapon. Mm-hmm. It was really they were killed because there was some sort of, I don't know, fear or just hatred for mm-hmm. the Black race. And, you know, I, and again, I'm just, you know, um, I'm just in awe of, <laughs> you know, the what the younger generation is going through now, right? And acknowledging the fact that this really sucks and this is not going to change for you, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And if if somebody is listening, if you don't don't wake up and be like, you know what, we we need to do something about this, then it's too late for you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. If you went through all summer and you haven't woken up, I don't know what to do with you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Man, oh, huh. 
So back to the systematic um, racism again. Systematic racism, you know, against Black people is not just the the school system, right? It's the healthcare, is yeah. the um, the the financial system, yeah. everything in between. Mm-hmm. What do you think the U.S. government, or what do you think the people, quote unquote, in power? should do about it? (laughs) And do you think they will actually do anything about it? That's hard to say because there are the few in power right now who do recognize that systemic racism is a thing. But the problem that we first have to combat is, is convincing everyone or like making sure everyone actually knows that systemic racism is real. And like systemic racism is a thing that affects people Mm. because there are a lot of people who want to argue that it's not real. And they'll say, well, white people struggle. Well, not every white person is in, you know, just because I have white privilege doesn't mean that I'm, I'm rich. And like, I had to, I live in a trailer home. What do you mean? I have white privilege. It's like, that's not what that means. Like it just, the fact that you have white skin and someone else has black skin and the way that society treats you, that is white privilege. The fact that you don't get scared to, you know, at the possibility that you might die when you get pulled over by the cops, like the fact that you see that as an inconvenience and someone else sees that as a possible death note, as a possible, like, like that could be the end. The fact that you experience a different feeling, that is white privilege. Just that alone. So getting people to realize that systemic racism genuinely impacts many Black people. And I feel like they think it's like mm, like three Black people or like maybe like lower poverty or like lower income Black people or like people in like the projects. But like it impacts Black people at every level. And that that's also the part that people don't understand. It's it affects you in, in, in the job industry, like just getting a job. Your last name alone can dictate whether if you get an interview or not, yeah. whether you have had, if you have all the qualifications, you know, hearing the last name Ochola versus Brown or like, yep. you know, things like that um, can really affect you. And that is systemic racism. You must be exhausted. I am. <laughs> I am. Yeah, you, you must be very exhausted. Again, um, I say this because, you know, I, I truly believe, you know, people, in, people like you are going to be the ones that are going to change things for, you know, um, my daughters and my children, right? Your generation is probably in the best position to sort of move the needle forward, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what is really sort of sad for me is it's it's exhausting for you guys. I mean, you are you, you must be tired. Um, <laughs> tell me how how exhausted how you and it, again, even though you are tired and you're exhausted, I'm pretty sure you 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 can't stop, right? Because if you stop, then that means you know you know, another Donald Trump gets hired, right? (laughs) How tiring or how exhausting is it 
for you right now, you know, at your age, trying to be an advocate, trying to speak the truth and trying to sort of, you know, move forward with all the social injustices things that you, you keep doing, like, how tired are you? I am so tired that I have recently taken a 30-day social media hiatus. Mm-hmm. I have had to take a break because I started to notice that it affected my mental health negatively. It affected my relationships with people negatively. It affected my just physiological negatively. And I, I, as much as I love to be the voice for, for those who don't have one, if my voice burns out, then, you know, it, it doesn't do any good if I, if I can't speak anymore because I'm so tired. So I did take a 30-day hiatus just to regroup and find maybe other, other ways to voice my concerns, other ways to advocate, um, just other avenues that aren't so draining to me emotionally or aren't so draining to me mentally but you know activism isn't pretty like activism isn't it's not easy it's hard i mean mlk was drained um everyone who was a part of the civil rights movement was drained but you know it's 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 part of it and um it's it's really difficult to to keep fighting when you feel like no one is listening also. Um, I, I do a lot of my activism through my social media. So through Instagram or um, on my Snapchat, I kind of like, I kind of made it into like a mini podcast. Like my, a lot of people's Snapchat stories are like 10 seconds long, but mine is like a minute of just like, here are things that you need to know because I feel like that's the way that I was able to reach young people and I've heard from people who are on my Snapchat story that they have gotten a lot of really useful information out of there. I post articles, I post um, other black voices that they need to listen to and, you know, kind of like a daily rundown of like what's going on in America and, you know. So after doing that for so long, that kind of started to drain me because all that I was ever talking about was, you know, negative things and and black pain and black suffering and as much as that's what the reality is i just had to take a minute to realize that not all of life is bad not all of life is negative and that i needed to appreciate my life for what it was at the time and um and find another way to kind of channel my my activism in a different outlet. So I've been working on my own podcast recently. I've been working on um, a YouTube channel recently, just kind of to put everything out there, but not on a everyday consistent kind right. of because that that was that's what was draining the most. But I I reached a lot of people that way, mm-hmm. and obviously anyone who's the age of like. 13 to like 19 has a Snapchat. And that's how I knew that I could reach my generation. Um, I would post time to time on Facebook, but that's like, you know, my mom and all her friends. Right. (laughs) Facebook is (laughs) washed out. Yeah. Yeah. So I really honed in on Twitter, on Snapchat, on Instagram um, to kind of do that. Mm. 
But it's tiring. Well, it's draining. <laughs> you know, kudos to you and your generation for all the wonderful things you guys are doing. Um, again, I can truly say because of your generation, because of people like you who don't stop the fight, you know, continuing speaking out um, and speaking truth. Um, because of that, I can, you know, rest assured that, you know, it, it wouldn't be as bad for my children or my my two year old daughter now, um, you know, because, again, I think, you know, people are, you know, your generation is really seeing, you know what, we we really need to do something about this. Um, and if we don't, we're screwed. <laughs> oh. Right. And we we're screwed. And it's like. It's kind of difficult when you're trying to be an activist, but also you have um, it's the centrist mindset of the people who are like, well, it's not necessarily affecting me, so I don't really care about it. Right. Um, those kind of people are the people that I just like. That's that's where my blockage is, like the people who don't care because it doesn't affect them. But you but but it will affect them. Right. Eventually, racism will always affect everyone at some aspect in some way, shape or form. Racism yep. will affect you, whether if you're white, you're black, you're Asian, anything, you know. Um, and it's getting those people to understand that we need everyone in the fight against racism. It's everyone versus racism. It's not black people's job to fight racism when racism wasn't even created by black people. Right. It was created by white people. They should be fixing this problem. Right. But we are the ones trying to fix this problem that was bestowed upon us that affects us. And we had no say we, we did not create it and it's it's getting people who are white but who don't necessarily feel like it's their fight i don't that's the part that kind of confuses me yep. is people white people who feel that it's not their job to fight racism because it doesn't affect them but like but like we didn't create it though right your people did so <laughs> it's it Ah, <laughs> oh, preach, preach, preach. Hey, listen, we are talking to Sandra Nina, um, sophomore at Point Plank, right? I mean, no, Point Park. <laughs> I, I, I think I call it Plant Park before. It's Point Park <laughs> University at Pittsburgh. Amazing dancer, advocate. Hey, listen, kudos to you. I appreciate all the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Uh, for having the conversation. The fight has just begun. We have a lot more to do. We have a lot more, a lot, a lot of places to go. Again, I think, you know, you said it very brilliantly that racism wasn't created by Black people. And those individuals, you know, especially our white friends who think, yes, racism doesn't affect them, so they're not going to do about it. Indirectly, you're actually being racist or yes. empowering the racist yes. individuals right because when we talk about allyship um yeah. we need people because again as black folks a lot of times people just ignore our voices right mm -hmm. so we need people who look like the racist individuals we need people who look like the people who are bullying the black folks to tell them hey you need to stop that yeah. And so if those individuals are not out talking and making the comments, like you said, oh, it doesn't affect me, so I don't need to do anything about it. Sorry to tell you, you are part of the problem, yeah. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. You are part of the problem. So let's get out, have the uncomfortable conversations, yes. be great allies, and let's solve this issue together. 
Um, yeah. One of my brilliant guests, um, you know, had mentioned that racism is not um, racism is more of cancer, right? It, you don't you don't fix cancer by putting bandages on your hand. You mm-hmm. fix cancer by putting in systematic ways or chemos and you know go through the whole process and then even after that you have to go back and be checking to see if the cancer is still there right in the american society racism is the cancer that is really ruining our people um and we try to fix it by putting programs of bandages this diversity this diversity that and forget about the fact that you know what it's going to take a systematic way or processes to actually fix racism, right? Yeah. Um, and again, you know, you're hearing it from Nina and she has gone through, you know, this phases of being bullied, just the fact that, you know, people think she's not black enough to be black or she's too black to be white. And, you know, just the sheer, you know, trying to find herself and her identity um, and being bullied for it just for who she is, right? That's, (laughs) I'm I'm just, that, that's just, I'm just going out this afternoon because I mean, I'm just, I'm just (laughs) right now, like, uh, I'm just upset. (laughs) it's just upsetting um you know to hear such depressing things <laughs> you know what i mean and we could do better as a society you know yeah. we could do better as a society but people are not doing better right um but anyway hey sandra thank you so much for um your honesty thank you so much for all you do um, I am going to give you one minute to uh, sort of you know, give a message out to the world. I do this to all my guests. I'm going to get you some beats. One minute. If you have one minute to tell the world anything, what would you tell the world? And whenever you're ready, I'm going to get you some beats to do that. <laughs> oh, on the spot. I guess if there's something I would like to tell the world, I would say... Find something you are passionate about and fight like hell for it. You know, don't, don't half-ass it. I'm, I don't know if you're, we're allowed to cuss on here, but. Oh, well. (laughs) Oh, well. You know, that's just the best word I can say. If, you know, you have to find something that you're passionate for and you have to commit to it 110%. And, you know, in doing that, someone else will follow, you know, in doing that, someone else will become inspired and doing that someone else will feel that they can, they can do it also. It takes one person to, to start a movement. It takes, it takes one person to, to start something impactful that, that, that spreads farther than just than just numbers you know it affects hearts minds and souls and and that's all that matters you know right on right on right on thank you so much sandra nina hey listen you heard it from sandra nina in the words of oprah winfrey passion is energy feel the power that comes from focusing on what excites you like sandra said hey find your passion get out there be a change And let's change this world together because that's the only way it would get better for everybody. Thank you again for joining me. I can't wait to continue our conversation. And uh, it's a wrap. It's a wrap. 
Oh man, I, I, I yeah, that was that was that was good. Thank you. <laughs>